If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY 88.1 FM, WDIY.org, and our WDIY app. And we start off with Perspectives with John Pierce. My guest this evening is Dr. James Higgins, who is going to talk to us about the history of medicine. He's a historian of medicine and lecturer at Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Earned his Ph.D. at Lehigh University under the direction of Dr. Roger D. Simon. His main areas of research, analysis, and publishing, the history of disease, medicine, and public health in Pennsylvania. He's published a book, Health of the Commonwealth, A Brief History of Medicine, Disease, and Public Health, published by Temple University Press in conjunction with the Pennsylvania Historical Association. And he's published a half dozen scholarly articles, offered about a dozen professional papers at conferences, both in the United States and France. So, Jim, let me stop right there. Why France particularly? They had an influenza conference and I study influenza, and this was a conference that I was concentrating on medical and other sociological problems after the flu of 1918-1919. And I took a look at Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and uh, what Bethlehem did to fight pneumonia in the years immediately following influenza. And that was the paper I gave with a bunch of other people who just do nothing else in the world but study influenza in 1918. Was that in Paris? No, it was in a city south of Paris called Rennes. And okay. so I flew into Paris and then took a train down and spent right. Oh, a few those days great there. trains over yes, there. Yes, the great trains. <laughs> so um, Jim Higgins has spent much of the time during COVID offering suggestions and analysis to various media, private companies, and government, and was part of a documentary for the Smithsonian Channel that explored the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1922. Jim, I didn't real. I always hear 1918. Didn't know it went till 1922. Yeah, some people who write about it, you know, it's it's several waves of disease. So in some places it'll hit first in 1918, the fall, the winter, and in other places, especially the summer hemisphere, early 1919 was the problem. But like you're seeing with COVID, we have waves of flu that come through where almost as positive as you can be that they're the virus that caused the 1918 uh, catastrophe, and as late as 1920. Cities like Pittsburgh will be shutting down again because of the flu. And this is not unlike what we're seeing with COVID, where we have several large waves come through. And both because of changes to the virus and people who were not infected, you see a continuing kind of rolling uh, offensive of infections throughout the world. And we are now going on our third year will be this autumn. Right. And we're talking 100 years ago, the 1918 to 22 attack on us, so to speak. You had a special interest in Pittsburgh. Yes. Why? I did my master's work at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And in order to go on to write a thesis, we had to kind of do a pre-thesis project. I've been interested in epidemiology, in disease, and I'd heard about the flu of 1918, so I thought, okay, I'll start here. And my advisor was nice enough to say, 
uh, at Duquesne, you don't need to hand in anything until the end of the semester. I like this project. So I gave a call to the Allegheny County Coroner's Office and wanted to look at coroner's reports. And they told me that those reports in 1918, 1919 were filed with the University of Pittsburgh. So I called them up and they said, you know, we filed these away in 1952, uh, 53. No one's looked at them since. And you're asking for four or five months worth of coroner's reports. And if you're just asking about your deceased great-grandmother, that would be no problem. But this is boxes. And I was persistent. And they said, okay. And I walk in and there are boxes, huge boxes piled on tables. And I start opening up coroner's reports that had been sealed 50 years earlier. The, the natural rubber bands had become hard like graphite, so they're kind of splintering when I'm opening them up. A coroner's report, and I didn't know this, is four or five pages long. There are affidavits or medical reports. And what I was really looking for were young people who died very rapidly in the month or two before October of 1918, because we know the virus is going to be there. It's just finding it. And... I wanted to see people, I knew I was on the right track if I, unfortunately, could find people in their late teens, early to mid-twenties who were in good health, got rapidly sick, and then died in five, six, seven days, which tends not to happen to, to young people like that. I was also looking for symptoms that stood out, um, epistaxis, so violent nosebleeds, discoloration of face and hands. And I was finding them, but other things happened. I was maybe two days into it. I opened up a report. It felt heavy. I knew there was something in it. And something that had been wrapped in brown paper fell out on the table and made a, a kind of a, a little bang. And I opened it up, and there's something flat and dull, gray, metallic. And I realized that I was looking at a bullet, and the bullet was flattened. And this coroner's report I opened up happened to be of a man who got a poor man, a steel worker, got in a fight gambling, a man pulled out a 32 revolver and shot him in the stomach, shot him in the abdomen. What I was looking was the bullet that was pulled out of this man's body after he died a few days later of a peritonitis infection of the abdominal cavity. It was wrapped up and put in this coroner's report and there it stayed until I opened it up in the year 2000. And subsequently, the University of Pittsburgh becomes interested in this large, this vast source collection they have. And I know of one maybe two incidents where they had to call hazmat from the Pittsburgh City Police because what was contained were things like um, Paris green, so arsenical powder, cyanide from people who had taken their own lives. It's treated as evidence wrapped in the coroner's report back then and placed on a file eventually uh, four decades later at University of Pittsburgh for researchers to find. And once I started going through those coroner's reports, I was hooked. I felt at the age of 22, 23, that I was doing real history for the first time. And I also started to see how the history of medicine could be connected to lives today and, and not just giving us a, a moment of reflection, but the ability to help out society with the study of the history of disease medicine and public health. That's an interesting comment about history because right. mostly we think about history as let's just look at the past and that's sure. so interesting, but it might not help us. Right. It becomes in a curiosity. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Jim, you're a historian. Yes. And I presume at Ryder you teach different history courses. Yes, yep. What are some of the courses that you teach there? In addition to history of medicine in America and history of medicine in the West, specialty classes include urban history and um, African-American history, and then general courses, all historians. We've got to keep teach, you know, unless you're in the rarefied air of, of a Harvard, you're going to teach 
courses like American History 1 and 2, Western Civ, Global History. So it's a, it's a real panoply, but what I'm able to do, uh, especially since Ryder is a smaller school, I can fit History of Medicine into all of my courses. Oh, terrific. So what made you want to zero in on History of Medicine, particularly of all these different fields that you do teach? I had started as an undergrad looking at uh, African-American history. I was particularly taken with the Great Migration at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. And as I started to research Pittsburgh, kind of an old steel town, I was deeply interested in urban history. Uh, it really was that first trip to the archive that got me going. Also, Pittsburgh, you know, I specialize in history of the late 19th, early 20th century. And when I was going to grad school 20 years ago in Pittsburgh, you had old steel mills. You had, I lived in an old steelworker's house. It had been cut into three apartments, cheaply built. I could push my finger. My brother and I lived <laughs> together. We could push our finger through the wall <laughs> to the newspaper that was used as insulation behind it. Right. And so it was just kind of, it just kind of all around me. And I applied to the program at Lehigh as an urban historian. And I knew that I could meld history of medicine with urban history and the history of the black experience in America. And that's just what piqued my interest and it kind of turned into an obsession. And 20 plus years later, I'm, I'm still doing it. You're still doing it. And you and I talked before about my colleague from Muhlenberg College, mm -hmm. Dr. Dan Wilson. Sure. And tell us a little bit about his importance. His importance, he is the world expert in our field in history of something called post-polio syndrome. And this is a syndrome that can develop in a small subset of polio virus survivors. And you can go years and even decades, as Dr. Wilson did, in relative good health and have delayed onset of polio-like symptoms that can be debilitating uh, to the point of paralysis. And uh, Dr. Wilson was one of my readers for my dissertation. Mm. And he's a noted expert in, in medical history, and it was just a thrill to have him yes, on indeed. my committee. And a wonderful human wonderful being. Wonderful person, too. wonderful human being. That's right. Where do you conduct most of your research? So at, <laughs> at different times, I conduct it in different places. For a long time, I was concentrating on the cities of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Allentown, and Bethlehem. And I, uh, my dissertation was a review of these four cities' responses to influenza. My first book-length project uh, took me all over the state. And so I was either in contact with or visited places as far removed as Bradford, Pennsylvania, uh, Pittsburgh, Franklin County. My subsequent work on the first head of public health in Pennsylvania took me a lot into uh, Harrisburg and then down to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, which is on Locust Street uh, in Philadelphia, and that's where his papers are. So you really have to go to where you think the collections are. Um, about six months ago, I had to abort a trip that I had planned to the Robert Koch Institute in Berlin uh, because of the upswing of COVID variants. And so I was able, able to go to Europe, but, but couldn't go into the Institute. So you really have to follow where these papers are. Uh, I've been up to Halifax to do research at Dalhousie University and the Admiralty House. And that's really what it is. You kind of follow the breadcrumbs in many ways, uh, not much different than a detective. You go where the, you think the evidence is. And for a historian to come upon the um 
what you described in Pittsburgh, the coroner's reports, or any of these old papers, it's just exciting. Yeah, it's just exciting. It's thrilling. And the firsthand accounts, it's one thing when you're looking at the uh, coroner's inquest, but one of the accounts is of a, a woman uh, written by her husband, and she just kind of sat up in bed and kept picking her forearms up and putting them down. And anyone who's watched someone in hospice will see this sort of behavior, uh, picking at bedclothes. And she finally sits up and uh, remains motionless at the foot of the bed for 15 minutes and then falls over dead. And I have accounts of people walking through the street, pitching forward because of the flu. During COVID, we called it kind of waking or walking asphyxiation, where the, the blood oxygen level falls falls very low, but does it over a period of a couple of days so that you adjust to it rather like you're climbing into the Rocky Mountains. And so your body adjusts to it, your body adjusts to it, it can no longer tolerate it, you swoon, you don't fall out dead, you faint, and then quickly your, your breathing stops. And so we see this, and I've got written accounts of it, of people sitting next to people on trolleys, and he just put his, his head on my shoulder and he was gone. Died. He was gone. Yep. Yeah. My guest this evening on Perspectives is Dr. James Higgins, who is an expert in the history of medicine, and he's telling us some really interesting tales. Time for us to take a break now. Hang in there with us, dear listeners. We will be back in just a moment. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100 or WDIY.org. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Galicia, and Brittany, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Bringing you music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 on WDIY Allentown listener-supported community public radio. And we're back on Perspectives. I'm John Pierce, your host. My guest this evening, Dr. James Higgins, talking to us about pandemics, the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1922, and other items. He's a historian, and he has chosen to concentrate on the history of medicine. Jim, what are some of the major developments of medicine in the Lehigh Valley throughout its history? So Lehigh Valley and Pennsylvania generally are a loci of a great deal of medical thought, both orthodox and unorthodox. You know, the two areas where we can kind of see a, a medical-religious fusion are in Pennsylvania and then the lower reaches of Louisiana. Oh. Uh, so when you think of powwow, which is, we tend to call it kind of a Pennsylvania-Dutch phenomenon of, of using Christian and even pre-Christian symbiology, along with rituals that have no connection to kind of a European religious tradition. We have a water cure in the Lehigh Valley, right up the street here in Fountain Hill, which was a, a kind of a school of thought that water in some form would cure whatever ails you. Mm-hmm. And so we have all of this, but our area of Pennsylvania in the Lehigh Valley becomes 
the home for a couple of decades for homeopathy in the United States. And so it's really transferred en blanc from uh, Europe here. And then both in Bath and in Allentown, where they have both what you would call a clinic or a hospital and a teaching school for homeopathy in the mid-19th century before moving down to uh, Philadelphia and founding, for instance, Hahnemann Hospital. The people who find that are up here first. And these traditions tend to last uh, much later into the 19th and 20th centuries than they do in most areas. I think the biggest milestone, though, is the founding of St. Luke's Hospital in Lehigh County in the 1870s. And so first it's actually at the old water cure hospital. And then when Asa Packer dies, he donates, I think it's $75,000 in 1879. So a massive donation to revamp the infrastructure of St. Luke's. St. Luke's brings in doctors from New York City who are paid well to make that move. And so you actually by the 1880s and 1890s have just about cutting it, not not from the research end, but if it can be implemented, whether it is um, increasingly sterile surgical fields, and that's coming really out of England in the work of, of Sir John Lister, if it is the use of the x-ray device at the turn of the 20th century, St. Luke's is going to acquire uh, these technical innovations very quickly after they become available on the American market. And so St. Luke's is a godsend for Bethlehem, especially for the steel workers who were sent over by the company, grievously injured some of them, with a company expecting the hospital to take care of these men for free. When you say sent over? Um, put in the back of a horse-drawn cart, drawn across rutted roads up to uh, St. Luke's Hospital. And whether you have, and the same in Allentown, records, the executive reports of St. Luke's discuss men who have their legs broken by horses and their the legs are unsplinted. They are put on the back of a wagon and dragged to St. Luke's Hospital screaming oh. uh, the whole way. But it is the first hospital in the Lehigh Valley that is is meant to act like an orthodox hospital. There's no water cure. We're not talking homeopathy. Uh, we're talking about science-backed diagnosis and treatment. And I think that's the greatest milestone in the Lehigh Valley. Uh, 20 years later, we'll see the opening of Allentown Hospital on 17th Street in Allentown. And then 14 years after that, 1913, you'll see Sacred Heart Hospital open up as the result of a diphtheria epidemic amongst many Roman Catholics in the working areas of, of Allentown that was uncontrollable. And so nurse nuns come in, and they end up founding a hospital in a mansion on 4th Street in Allentown that had been owned by a prominent judge. And they did surgery in some of the bedrooms and the sitting rooms, and the nurse nuns all slept outside on a screened-in porch for the first six months or, wow. or a year of operation. <laughs> so interesting. How would you say public health has changed in the last 100 years? I think a lot of public health we now take for granted more as public utility. And so, for instance, screening, filtering water, and then when chlorine comes on the scene in the early 20th century, this is really pushed and controlled by public health experts. If you can get your water supply cleaned up, then your infant mortality rate will almost immediately start approaching a, a 20th century rate. And the what they termed summer complaints, right? So we have two big seasons of dying uh, every year. And in February, March, and early April, that's when the aged die. Before does, the, it, does this go on today? It doesn't go on as much today. So with the aged, it, it's 
a winter time of being cold, of having influenza, of having the common cold developing into bronchitis and then pneumonia. And that's why the older people would die uh, late winter, early spring. August and September is when the so-called summer complaint would rear its head. And the summer complaint is nothing more than, than children generally under the age of two uh, dying of diarrhea. It's called a whole bunch of things, uh, diarrhea, cholera, and phantom, uh, a whole bunch of names. And what it really is are children drinking water uh, from a water table that's been lowered. And as that water table lowers towards the end of summer, uh, the teeters, the count of bacteria in every mouthful of water goes up. Children are uniquely susceptible to diarrhea illnesses. They dry out. And oral rehydration therapy, which every mother and father knows today for their children who have diarrhea, is unknown. And so these children dry up and die in a day, two days. And you can see it in the newspapers. You can see it in the cemeteries around here. Uh, You'll see more children under the age of two dying during that three-month period, end of July, beginning of August through September. So we made some progress. We've made some progress there. And we think about it more sewage treatment, which we saw as a public health activity. It's now understood to just be part of the operations of a city. In other words, public health did such a good job that we forget how important it is because it's around us all the time. We just don't take notice until a pandemic breaks out. And all of a sudden, you're taking orders from people that you didn't know existed and you didn't know they had the power that they do. And as an individual... It just takes one time for you to become ill, and you're so thankful that these professionals are doing their craft. There's a great deal of truth that if you don't have your health, you don't have much at all. Right. In the early part of the Lehigh Valley history, uh, what sorts of remedies existed then? So if if we look at Native Americans, uh, who are the first people to populate the valley, we have pretty scant evidence. I think there's a, a... a misconception amongst people that whether we're looking at Native Americans or Europeans, uh, that natural remedies existed for sort of everything that came down the pike. And that's partly, I believe, a experiential problem. We walk into a homeopathic store, or natural food store, and you see herbs from across the planet. And that is nothing more than the direct result of globalization. You've got herbs from sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Polynesia, all sitting on a store shelf somewhere in Pennsylvania. So it's very tough to tease out, especially since Native Americans don't leave behind written records and everything you're learning about them is coming from a European source. But they did claim to have very good luck with snake bite, which we generally think is pretty tough to believe. An envenomation is an envenomation. We haven't found a botanical uh, source that will um, do something for the venom, for instance, of one of the rattlesnakes that calls Pennsylvania home. But when we look at, at Europeans and, and colonials in Pennsylvania, we kind of break it into two uh, categories. One is the category of the traditional um, conventional doctor. And it's purge and bleed. So opening up the veins, not just of the arm, which we show in the movies, but they have kind of blueprints of where to cut somebody depending upon their illness. And this includes things like cutting open and bleeding the genitals, cutting open and bleeding the buttocks, which we don't think of. The movies don't show that. (laughs) And men like George Washington, we have very little doubt that when you read his last illness in 1799, 
he may have died of the throat infection, but he certainly died of hemorrhaging, and that hemorrhaging was caused by his doctors. Up to 40 ounces of blood was drained out of this man. Oh, wow. And when you read how he and other people die, it's exsanguination. You're reading somebody getting more tired. They can't now lift their head over a pillow. They're very pale. You're bleeding them out. In the 17th and 18th and, and early 19th centuries, you could have violent diarrhea. And likely as not, your doctor was going to prescribe a, a mercury-based compound that was designed to give you diarrhea. And so you're already dying of it or you're already suffering of it. And this guy is, and it's always a male doctor, is always trying to get you to clean yourself out more, give you um, American Physic, which is what we would call today Ipecac. You may have a, a, a gastrointestinal order, disorder where you're vomiting and he'll make you vomit more. And so it's about getting the systems in balance, which is one reason why people, and not just poor people, not just people who, who you might chalk up as ignorant, they're living on the edge of the frontier. Um, people in Philadelphia often chose someone who was not a conventional physician. They couldn't do more for you, but they would probably cause you less pain, less unease. And in the end, you may have had a greater survival rate uh, for some infections if you went to someone that wasn't going to bleed you and wasn't going to purge you. You could be prescribed things like opium, which really was the purvey of the conventional physician as the pharmacopoeia opens up. Quinine uh, to take down the, the, the bark of the chinchona tree to bring down the fever of malaria and help you shake off the chills. So you had some things, but we've got kind of one foot in a world that is becoming more science-based as the scientific revolution, the enlightenment really takes holds in the minds of people. And another world that is using a more traditional response, which is going to fade out over the 19th century as the remedies that are offered by the unconventional physicians and their explanations of disease become less and less tenable in the face of growing scientific evidence. To put another way, a water cure doctor will tell you that water will work for your headache, for the tumor that's growing in your lungs, for your bout of diphtheria, and for your fallen arches. The <laughs> conventional doctor is going to begin, yeah, he's going, he, he and then eventually she, they're going to begin parsing out their remedies, getting rid of some older remedies, bleeding, for instance, in favor of newer remedies. In the face of that, the water cure, the homeopathy specialist, this is going to be very tough for them to main and maintain any kind of currency. And the, the final leg that's kicked out is, is licensure by the state. If you want to call yourself a doctor into the 20th century, you're going to have to go through a licensing and internship procedure. And you won't be allowed in hospitals if you're, for instance, a homeopathic doctor because the hospitals that the state has cleared to act as intern sites don't include hospitals that are going to allow homeopaths, osteopaths at the time. Osteopathic medicine bears no resemblance to osteopathic medicine today. And so the one discipline that survives really is osteopathy, where they take on most of the trappings of conventional medicine and leave behind most of what made them different from conventional medicine in the late 19th century. Well, we're in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And unfortunately, James, we don't have time to explore that with you at this point. Maybe we have you come back and sure. we'll talk more about these pandemics. Unfortunately, the virus will be here. It will be here. We come to the end now of Perspectives by John Pierce. My guest, Dr. James Higgins. We thank you so much for coming over to WDIY. James told us off the air that he's a big NPR fan. I am. I am. <laughs> okay.
that's a testament to your intellectual capability. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> As we say here. So, dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, John Pierce. Looking forward to chatting with you at another time. Until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor.